Olasu. This afternoon we return to the meditative cultivation of empathetic joy. This time we'll venture out, expand our awareness out into the world. And taking delight in very simple joys of others, hedonic well-being of all kinds, as long as it's not unwholesome. So attending to the fruits, I mean, when things go well, good fortune, it's a nice thing to rejoice in when we're fortunate. And then taking delight beyond that in occasions when people are actually cultivating the causes of happiness, not simply seeking the catalysts. Because it's so easy to find the catalysts. We some, if we see something out there in the objective world, that will make me happy. And what we're looking at is a catalyst that may or may not make, may or may, may or may not make you happy. You hope it will, but there's no guarantee. But when one kind of wises up with greater intelligence, greater discernment, perceptiveness, and knows what the actual causes of well-being are, one finds, of course, they're within. And so for those who are cultivating the actual causes of happiness, of genuine happiness, attending to that closely, imagining their joy, again, whether it's hedonic, whether it's eudaimonic, imagining their joy, and in so doing, then kind of venturing into it, and there's where the kind of a resonance, a resonance strike uh, is aroused, and empathetic joy takes place. And then taking delight in those who are actually experiencing eudaimonic or genuine happiness. So all good. At the same time, Shantideva, the great Indian Bodhisattva, writing in the 8th century or so, when he comments on other virtues, the virtues of generosity, virtues of developing samadhi and patience, and so a wide variety of virtues, he said these are like trees that kind of, what was it? Some kind of a, fr- a, a, a plant that just gives, a banana tree, a plant, plant, plantain tree, that just gives its fruit and then it dies. That's what he said. Gives its fruit and then it dies, right? Whereas he says, bodhicitta is like a perennial tree and that is, it is a source, uh, it's a, it is a virtue, it's a source of well-being, but it just doesn't run out. It's a perennial tree. It just keeps on giving and giving and giving. And so as we are cultivating empathetic joy, we may go beyond the cultivation of what is called immeasurable empathetic joy and go on to this deeper level, which in the Mayana liturgy reads, and I'll just, just cite part of it, and that is, may we all, may all sentient beings never be parted from, never be parted from happiness devoid of dukkha. Well, that can only be, can only, there's only one possible interpretation there. Happiness devoid of dukkha can only be genuine happiness. Because hedonic pleasures, hedonic well-being is always going to come with strings, right? And so that is this, that is this aspiration. That is, instead of simply a, an emotion, which empathetic joy is, in the Mayana tradition, then it's turned into an aspiration, right? This is a bit of, how do you say, repeating what was said earlier. But may we all never be parted from genuine happiness that is free from dissatisfaction, free from dukkha. And then one wonders, how could that take place? Why couldn't all sentient beings be free or never be parted from happiness devoid of dukkha? Why couldn't they be? May they be? And then, may I be so enabled that I can help them realize that? Well, it's exactly at that point when one raises that depth of a question. How might we never be parted from genuine happiness devoid of dukkha, dissatisfaction? 
whole range of dukkha. That's where the theme of marga, or path, really comes up. Right? So when we think of different ways that meditation is taught in the modern world, and it's probably been taught in a wide variety of ways for a very long time, but nowadays meditation, as you read about it in the press, because I follow it fairly closely, okay, what's the latest study? What's it, what's it good for? What's it good for? I have not even read one that really focused on eudaimonic well-being. All the scientific studies showing this is how it affects cortisol, this is how it affects telomeres, this is how it affects blood pressure, this is how it affects your immune system, uh, this is how it affects anxiety, this is how it, you know. All good, all good. Meditation being put into the service of samsara. Samsara can be a bit more pleasurable, not quite so painful. In other words, it's treating symptoms. Like so much of the medication for psychological disorders. Much better to have a medication that treats symptoms than have nothing at all. So, and much better to treat the actual underlying causes so one might actually be cured or healed. And so when one brings to mind, really goes in depth, brings the wisdom to the cultivation of empathetic joy, moves beyond the emotion to an aspiration, that's where wisdom really is called for. How might we reach a path how might we move along a path so that we are not simply having a bit of virtue here and a bit of pleasure there, a bit of virtue here, a bit of pleasure there, a little bit of lamrim, a little bit of vajrayana, a little bit of dumo, a little bit of dzogchen, a little bit of vajrasattva, a little bit of chö. You know, kind of a nice medley, kind of like somebody gave us a bouquet of dharma. Mmm, dumo. Mmm, chö. Mm, you know, it's very nice. It's all good. It's all good. But where in the midst of that is there a path? And I think an attitude that's rather common nowadays is uh, never mind the path. Just try to get a whole bunch of really good imprints, make a lot of prayers, and it'll turn out well for you in future lifetimes. I think it's a very common attitude nowadays. As if they've kind of given up on us. Somebody's given up. And so now, in the, when that happens, then the Buddha Dhamma is being taught simply as a religion. Nothing wrong with religion. I'm religious. I'm not anti-religious. But it's being taught as a religion. Here are your practices, and then practice them, make a lot of prayers, and hope for the best in a future life. Now, boy, is that, that's not religion. I don't know what is. Christianity does that. Judaism, many, many schools do that. Islam does that. Hinduism, I'm sure a lot of Hinduism does that. Get good karma, accumulate a lot of bunya, and so forth. So, Buddhism is reduced to a religion. Buddhist meditations, mindfulness, mindfulness seems to be covering everything these days, reduced to a therapy. Not much in the way of ethics, hardly any samadhi, no view at all. So, instead of having some kind of therapy, have mindfulness therapy. Better than nothing. Better than nothing. But not as good as a path. So, meditation can be taught as therapy. Meditation can be taught as religion. In some monasteries, Buddhism is really taught as philosophy. You know, logic, debate, who wins the debate? And who can, who can be, get the most articulate, eloquent Dharma talk on Madhyamaka philosophy and how it relates to Randong and Jendong and Chittamatra and Svatantaka Madhyamaka and how the Buddhist views are better than those Samkhya views and the Nyayaka views and so forth and, and who can beat everybody else in debate. In other words, Buddhism can be taught as a philosophy. It can be taught as therapy. It can be taught as philosophy. It can be taught as religion. 
And all of those can be beneficial. And then it can be taught as the Buddha taught it. And I, I do think, I mean, judge for yourself, obviously. I'm not asking you to accept anything because I say it. But I think what the Buddha was teaching was a science of liberation. When I try to think, what was he really teaching? What was he teaching? A science of liberation. Because it was all about knowledge, because the root of suffering is ignorance, therefore the only antidote is knowledge. But not just knowledge like how many, how many moons does Jupiter have. Knowledge specifically of the experiential kind that goes beyond conceptual knowing to an immediate an immediate, unmediated knowing that transforms the one who knows, the knowing that liberates, the truth that makes you free. It's a science of liberation. I think that's what Buddha Dharma really is. And then it degenerates to a philosophy of liberation, degenerates to a religion of liberation, and then degenerates to therapy of making you feel a little bit better. And then, then one sees there are already 250 schools of psychology. What do we need another one for? And then meditation just gets appropriated by other schools of therapy, and then it's vanished altogether. Then Buddhism is gone without a trace. Because it was just, people took their straws and just sucked up little things from Buddhism they liked. A little bit of mindfulness, a little bit of relaxation, and so forth. And then, then there's nothing left. Then it just, poof, like a genie that vanished into space. And no more Buddha Dhamma. But coming back, I think, science of liberation. I think that really captures what the Buddha was talking about. Modern terminology, but I don't think it's an overlay. I don't think it's some special, heavy interpretation of what he's doing. He was talking about knowledge, not knowledge that is designed to liberate. And for that, there needs to be a path. And for the path, there needs to be an entrance. And so from the lineage that I've been primarily trained from, the Indo-Tibetan, Indian and then a Tibetan lineage, then one speaks of the path, the path of Shravakas leading to becoming Arhat, a Shravaka Arhat, the path of a Pratyeka Buddha leading to becoming a Pratyeka Buddha, the path of a Bodhisattva leading to becoming a Buddha. And there are five paths, and as I mentioned earlier, the initial path is called the path of, of accumulation, right? For a Shravaka, for a Pratyeka Buddha, for a Bodhisattva. And then how do you get onto that path so you can really venture forward? And now you are on a trajectory. You're not just doing a bit of dharma here and a bit of dharma there, a bit of virtue here, a bit of virtue there, but actually something that has linearity to it, some real progression, growth, evolution, going from here to there rather than here to here. And the crucial element there to become either Shravaka Arhat or Pratyeka Buddha is motivation, aspiration. That's crucial. That's, that's how you enter the path. It's motivation. When that motivation becomes spontaneous, uncontrived, natural, effortless, it's called renunciation there. It is for one's own liberation, to become an arhat, to become a pratika buddha. But when that is just overwhelming, when that's the central, the dominating force, the prime directive of one's whole existence, oriented towards that, that's really the key. And it's interesting, too, this may be helpful. I found it very, very useful that when one takes the three trainings, the three trainings of Shila, Samadhi, Prajna, the three trainings that form the structure of Buddhist practice altogether, and maps these onto the Eightfold Noble Path, the Eightfold Noble Path, they actually, they, they, they map. And so, if you take ethics, the Shila, the Shila training, then what fits into that in terms of the, eight, the Noble Eightfold Path, Eightfold Noble Path? And that is right action, right speech, right livelihood. They all fit into ethics. And then there's samadhi. Samadhi, 
big samadhi, not just single-pointed attention, big samadhi, mental balance, coherence, exceptional sanity. And what fits into that? Authentic mindfulness, authentic samadhi, as in single-pointed attention, and authentic effort, knowing how much effort, the right, the tuning, how much effort. And those three go into samadhi. So interestingly enough, mindfulness is not associated with wisdom. It's associated with samadhi, most directly related. And then we come to the training in, in wisdom, and within the Eightfold Noble Path, it's right intention and right view. It strikes me as being very profound, having very, very great meaning. And that is the fact that right intention, sometimes poorly translated as right thought, I would rather say authentic intention, authentic motivation. Sampadan kunlong double double do. Sampadan kunlong double double do. Yang dape samba. Authentic intention, authentic motivation. That's there in wisdom that you won't have. Strong view, strong, strong statement here. You won't have an authentic motivation unless you have an authentic view. The two are coupled. So you have a very superficial view, reductionistic view, hedonistic view, something like that. Then authentic motivation won't arise because it has to arise out of an authentic view of reality. And so the two together, the motivation and the view, are very much coupled in wisdom. And so this renunciation that arises on the path of the Shravaka, on the path of the Pratyeka Buddha, one is aspiring for that realization. That is that right intention, yangdate samba in Tibetan. Yangdate samba. On the bodhisattva path, of course, it's bodhicitta. Bodhicitta is authentic intention for the bodhisattva, right? Within a view that makes sense. And that is, if you don't believe that it's possible for you to achieve an, uh, the enlightenment of a Buddha, if you think that's out of the question, if you think it's only for a rare few, but you don't really have it in you, you'll never develop bodhicitta. If your view is not consonant with bodhicitta, then you'll never develop bodhicitta. So the two have to go together. If you believe that you're just basically an animal and all your, all your, motive, all your desires and so forth are all just genetically hardwired, you'll never develop bodhicitta. Frankly, if you're a materialist, you'll never develop bodhicitta. Really, authentically? I don't think so. I don't think it's possible. How are you going to say, for the sake of all sentient beings throughout space, I'll achieve, achieve an enlightenment, a perfect enlightenment of Buddha, but by the way, I could be dead any day now, in which case I'm snuffed out. It doesn't make any sense at all. It's ridiculous. Why are you making such a stupid view, st- stupid aspiration? You'll never realize it. Get real. Try to be nice for a while, and then you'll, then you'll be dead. You know. So that's a, that's a materialistic motivation. If you want to be benevolent, good, be benevolent, and then you'll be dead, and you'll be terminated, and so have that motivation. So the bodhicitta motivation only makes sense, really, within the Mahayana view. Right? So motivation is critical. Motivation then gets you onto the path of a bodhisattva. Motivation of renunciation gets you onto the path of a shravaka or Pajyaka Buddha. But it's not enough for that motivation to sink in so deeply that again it's spontaneous, effortless, natural. You're kind of your prime directive from the depths of your being that orients it. It prioritizes everything else. If we shift it over just as an analogy to St. Augustine in the Christian tradition, one of the most brilliant philosophers in the whole tradition, he said... The love of God, he said, the love of God, amor dei, the love of God. He said, this is the passionate yearning to know God. I actually learned that in graduate school at Stanford. It was so useful because I never knew what the word love of God really means. You know, natural calamities strike, all kinds of awful things happen that are said to be the will of God. I'm not going to thank him for that. But then sometimes we luck out. So it's like love of a casino master. Sometimes you win, sometimes you lose. Why, why would you love the owner of a casino? 
you know, you lose most of the time. Once in a while, you didn't ever make any sense. Because samsara is kind of like a casino, frankly. You win some, you lose some, right? But Augustine had much more wisdom than I, than I brought to that phrase. And he said, the love of God is not just think you lo- love God, I love you a whole bunch, but rather the passionate yearning to know God. And they said, that amor dei, that love of God, what it really is, is a prioritization of all your desires. That now all your desires, they settle. And there's a hierarchy. There's an evolution to them. So I've often given, and this is why I get so much dark chocolate, is because I've commented some years back, I made the statement of all my desires, my preference for dark chocolate over milk chocolate is perhaps one of the most trivial. It's true. I mean, it's real. I don't mind, I don't mind milk chocolate at all. But I mentioned this is my most trivial desire. And then ever since then, I'm just getting pounds and pounds and pounds of dark chocolate. <laughs> So thank you, but that's not exactly why I mentioned it in the first place. That's the most trivial desire. Now I can tell you a little bit less trivial. Um, I, I, pre- I prefer Porsches over Land Rovers. Porsches over Land Rovers. <laughs> Everybody hit po- podcast people? Porsches over Land Rovers. That's my preference. It's one of my lower preferences, but Porsche... Okay. A prioritization of all the desires that for those desert fathers, for those great souls in the Christian tradition who are so focused, so benevolent, so compassionate, it was a prioritization of all desires. And that which was at the top was the desire to know God. Good. Very good. For the person seeking liberation, the highest desire is to achieve liberation. For the bodhisattva, the highest desire to achieve enlightenment for the sake of all sentient beings. But how is that aspiration, whether for the Shravaka, the Pratyeka Buddha, or the Bodhisattva, how is that aspiration, how are, this, how are the roots of that aspiration going to sink deep enough that you're hitting, oh, it's a nice metaphor, that you're hitting into the groundwater. You're ta- the roots have gone so deep that they're not contingent upon rain this day and not, not that day and drought and this, that, but in fact the roots have gone so deep that they've gone down into the groundwater, which is just always there, whether you're having a drought or whether you're having floods, the roots have gone so deep. How are you going to get your aspiration, whether for liberation or or perfect enlightenment, how is it going to go so deep that it's like tapping into the groundwater that's constant, that it's uncontrived? You don't have to to rev it up. You don't have to keep on cultivating it. It's just, it's, just, it's just where you are. And again, in the tradition in which I've been trained, shamatha enables Shamada by itself doesn't do it. Shamada by itself doesn't give you that aspiration. Shamada by itself can just give you shamada. Ah, isn't it nice? It's blissful, luminous, and non-conceptual. I like it. I want to stay here. That's not a path. That's treading water in a bathtub. Right. But if through the cultivation of shamada, you've, number one, really made go dormant, dormantified the obscurations, right? ill will, which is debilitating, just like drinking strychnine. It's so toxic, so toxic, so poisonous for the mind. And then sensual craving, craving for all the bounties of the desire realm. Enormous distraction, big fat addiction. And then excitation and anxiety, laxity and dullness, debilitating uncertainty. To be free of that bondage, to be free of that, and through the cultivation of shamatha, the achievement of shamatha, then having the five jhana factors come up so that you've got coarse investigation, subtle analysis. 
you've got a sense of well-being, you've got bliss, and you have single-pointed attention. The achievement of shamatha, just access to the first jhana, is enough for all of those five jhana factors to arise and for you to be temporarily free of all of those obscurations. You now have a body-mind that is serviceable to apply to that authentic motivation, whether, again, to become a shravaka arhat or whether to become a buddha by way of the bodhisattva path, there it is. The union of those two, a serviceable mind and authentic motivation, and that's what gets you onto the path. So, nothing but of what I just said was just my opinion. There's ancient wisdom behind this. So, all of this pertains to empathetic joy. Starting as an emotion, this empathetic delight, this rejoicing satisfaction in the simple happinesses, children enjoying the playground, laughing and just having fun, you know, that's included, that's part of it, right? All the way up to the great bodhisattvas, the great yogis, the arhats, the, the buddhas and so forth, sowing the seeds of genuine happiness, experience the fruits of genuine happiness. Taking delight in all of that, that's an emotion. But then we can take it to another step, and that is to an aspiration. May we all be free, or never be parted from, never be parted from genuine happiness, free of dukkha, the whole bandwidth of suffering of suffering, suffering of change, suffering, ubiquitous condition suffering. And of course, as you arouse that aspiration, may we all be free. May the Guru, may the Buddhas enable me, bless me, so that I may actually do that to facilitate, to help all sentient beings never be parted from such genuine happiness. Very noble aspiration. Very noble aspiration. But if it's to be at all realistic, then of course we have to realize it ourselves. No? To have entered a path we say, now I'm on a trajectory. It's going from here to there to awakening. And from that vantage point, from that perspective, from that path, then help others onto the path. So empathetic joy, I think, is quite deep, quite deep, quite transformative. Let's practice. Find a comfortable position. Set your body and mind at ease. As you settle your body, speech, and mind in the natural state, as we've done before.
And as we move into the meditative cultivation of empathetic joy, let's begin, as usual, by directing our awareness inwards, taking delight, taking satisfaction in our own good fortune in this moment to have the leisure, the opportunity, all the conducive conditions we could hope for to realize genuine happiness and to set out on a path by which we may never be parted from genuine happiness, free of dukkha. Appreciate this opportunity. Take delight in it so that you can take full advantage of it. And let the field of your awareness expand. Let your attention rove. And attend to those who have found some well-being, some hedonic well-being, good fortune, some happiness in the world. All other material needs met. And finding some joy and satisfaction in their lives. Take delight in this. How much better this than blatant suffering?
With each out-breath, breathe out the light of joy from your heart as you share others' joy. Tend to those who are cultivating the causes of genuine happiness, engaging in virtue of any kind, whether they're religious, not religious. Virtue is virtue. And we're not seeking out perfect people who appear to our minds as flawless. We're not taking delight in people. We're taking delight in the virtue that people sometimes embody and bring to the world, whoever they may be. Take delight in the genuine happiness of those who are experiencing the fruits of having cultivated the true causes of such well-being. Those who lived in the past, those who live in the present. out your delight as if you were saying to each one, thank you on behalf of all of us.
for bringing this light to the world. Then you may move beyond the emotion, this empathetic joy and satisfaction. Transform it into an aspiration. May we all never be parted from genuine happiness, free of suffering. And with every outbreath, breathe out this benevolent aspiration. that we may all be free.
unleash your imagination, expand the scope of your imagination. And imagine how could you help others to realize this aspiration, to be truly free. What could you do in the short term, the long term? As you breathe out, once again letting your imagination play, imagine those whom you are attending to, finding the freedom that is their heart's desire, for we all wish to be free of suffering, completely. Tibetan lit- liturgy for empathetic joy concludes with the phrase May the Guru and the Buddhas bless me that I may make this so. If you wish, you may imagine a variation of Donglen. It's a traditional practice, not one that I've made up. With each in-breath, imagine form of light drawing in all the blessings of the awakened ones, of the past, the present, and the future. Imagine the wisdom, the compassion, the creative energy of all the enlightened ones converging in upon you as radiant white light filling your own being, your entire being, 
with each out-breath. Breathe out this light. May each one be free. May each one never be parted from genuine happiness, free of suffering. Breathe in the light, breathe out the light. Release all appearances, release all effort, and let your awareness rest in its own nature, knowing itself, and linger there for a little while after the chime.
Let's bring the session to a close. Any questions, comments, or observations, first of all, about the practice? There are all kinds of interesting theoretical issues we can get into, but as I've said, at the end of the eight weeks, if you're feeling confident at least in at least one practice, let alone all three shamatha modes and all four measurables, at least one, that'd be good. So for the sake of confidence, familiarity. Any questions or anything unclear about any of the practices? Yes, Anne, Annie. Uh, in the practice we did this morning, the awareness of awareness, when you pose the questions, uh, who is it that's observing? Um, what are you doing now? Yeah. Those questions. Yeah. Um, it wasn't quite who's doing the observing. No, that'll, come right. yep, that'll come tomorrow. It's a bit coarser level. I, I want to hear your question and I will. But just to make sure that we're reviewing correctly the practice this morning, there's a subtle variation there. And there's a, there's a, in Buddhist meditation, there's often a movement from coarse to subtle. Coarse to subtle. We're not always doing things. But when we're awake, we're always aware of something. And so this morning, the focus was on who's doing something. Who's the agent? Who's releasing and inverting? That's doing. Is there someone in there controlling that was the question this morning. Tomorrow we'll go subtler, tomorrow morning, and we'll, even when we're not, when you're just sitting there, let, let's do it for five seconds. Just sit there and don't do anything at all. And even when, when you have a sense of not doing anything at all, the Buddhist hypothesis here is that you probably do have a sense of being someone in here who's observing, and that's a subtler level. Now back to you. So I think you said, observe what comes to mind. As in response to that question, who's mm. doing the, with the release and the inversion? Yes. Yeah. What comes to mind? And then there was, what do you think, uh, who do you think you are and what do you think you're doing? I thought I'd put it in real colloquial. Yep. Yeah. That's vernacular English. Who do you think you are, Anne? And then quite <laughs> quickly you said, then release. There wasn't very much time before. Oh, no, but of course... I, I wasn't saying do the and then release immediately. Mm -hmm. I was just reminding that this is part of the oscillation. So there's the inversion. Take 15, 20, 30 seconds if you like, posing these questions, and then instead of answering them conceptually or conceptually, who do you think you are? And then see as you're inverting, what is this sense of self? Who is the agent? What comes to mind? What do you think you're doing? What comes to mind? Do that as long as you like. And then when you feel, okay, I think it's enough, then total release. Okay? So there's an inversion and a release at your own rhythm. Mm -hmm. Whether you want to conjoin it with the breath or do it much more leisurely. 
30 seconds in, 30 seconds out, whatever. I think you just answered my question, which was, uh, you just mentioned not to think about it conceptually. So you don't become, you don't make it into an analytical meditation. I didn't hear that. You oh, don't no, it's, it's an interesting question. It's like in a question earlier, it might have been Ileana, somebody over in this vector at 11 o'clock for me. Um, I think it was Ileana. In terms of, yes, it was. It was achieving shamatha and loving kindness. And I responded rather elaborately that when you, and I'm going to now do it very concisely, when you, when you set forth in the practice the meditative cultivation of loving kindness, it is, I wouldn't say analytical, but it is discursive meditation. Thoughts, images, deliberately generated. But then, like turning the, oh, I used to own a motorcycle, when you turn the key and then the, the engine catches, you know, a car, motorcycle, whatever, then you don't need to keep on, you don't need to keep the, the, the key turned, uh, bad for the ignition. Then it's purring, then it's running on its own. So you start with discursive meditation, and then when, now we want to move away from the mechanistic analogy, but when it's purring, when the loving kindness actually does arise, then you can just slip into non-discursive. You don't need to keep on turning the ignition key with more thoughts and more imagery, more thoughts and imagery, because the whole point of the discursive thoughts was to arouse the genuine aspiration. And when it's there, then you don't need to think. I mean, I love to, I love to linger on this point because it's such a rich practice, but think of a mother who takes her child to school with, and, and, and as a child gets out, you know, first day of school and have a, ha, you know, enjoy school. I hope you meet some happy friends and have really good teachers. I think this is going to be a really good school for you. I hope you really enjoy your day. So go for it. And you watch your little kindergarten kid toddle off to the school. But imagine the mother lingers out there and watches the children come out on the playground and she sees her child now with the other children. She doesn't have to keep on thinking and may you be happy and may you find, you know, she doesn't, all she, it's there already. And all she's doing is attending, and then she might even broaden the scope. May all the children here be, be nice to each other, enjoy each other. May they all be happy. May they live in harmony here. And you don't need to keep on saying it, because she's a loving mother and is already there, right? So in a similar fashion, loving kindness starts discursive, goes, and then goes non-discursive, and, that was, I think, a meaningful parallel, this starts discursive. And it's Padmasambhava saying this. Arouse the question, who is it? Who is it? Who what? is it that is inverting the awareness and releasing the awareness? That's discursive. There's no question about it. But rather than preparing to write an essay on it by thinking a lot about it and coming up with a really smart answer that you might even get published in a peer-reviewed journal, uh, rather raise the question discursively and then answer it experientially. In which case, there's no paper to write. So once again, it's the culmination of contemplative inquiry is going beyond thought and the, cultivation, the culmination of scientific inquiry is thought. It's publishing a paper. Yeah. You're welcome. Yes, doctor. Thank you, Annie. Can I ask two questions? You may, but only one at a time. You know my memory. Uh, and first question is uh, when we are uh, meditating on uh, without object yes and we've got this uh, and we are staying without object uh, I, I didn't quite understand that we are staying without St- object uh, yes. quite for a while yes and after that you feel that you are falling from this a little bit you recognize they start to fall yeah you start to fall yes yeah. indeed and what to do during this time should I uh, make slice uh, mental effort to bring it back, or should I uh, relax, uh, release it, and it will come back uh, naturally? Ah, say very good. 
So when you say you're, you're falling away, it's a nice way of phrasing it. Like you, you were standing upright, and then you kind of fall, right? It's just feeling something like... Of course. Yeah, yeah and I, I wasn't mean literally that you actually fall over and bump your head. So I was... I think I understood what you said. Well, bear in mind there are two ways you can fall. Two ways you can move away from attentional balance. Nyamsha. Nyamsha. So nyamsha means evenly placing. Nyamsha. I translate it as meditative equipoise. So there are two ways we can fall away from nyamsha, meditative equipoise. One is to fall away by, by losing clarity. Then you can fall into laxity dullness. Right? That's one way to fall. And the other way I think you were referring to is we fall because then we get caught up in thoughts. And then it's gopa and koa. So excitation and agitation. So we can fall either way. We can fall out of this meditative equipoise, the balance of attention, where it's relaxed, stable, and clear. We can fall either way, right? So mostly, well, mostly in the early phases of meditation, we fall, tend to fall, into more excitation, getting caught up in thoughts and so forth. And so I think the most skillful means here, and I've seen it in multiple traditions, but especially in the Dzogchen Mahamudra teachings on, on shamatha, but also, Kamalashila also, um, is the first thing is relax. That it, and it's counteracting. It's something opposite from a very natural, habitual response. And that is when you see yourself falling, then to tense up, to ah, dimasong, akka, akka, da dimasong, achamasing, da yabuchumasong, you know? Scolding oneself. Oh, I'm doing, I'm, again, oh, getting frustrated, frustrating, and yanking back. And I'll try harder. I'm not, doing, I'm not doing this very well, but I'll try harder. Try harder. It's exhausting. Just exhausting. So, and it was exhausting a thousand years ago, and it's exhausting now. So the first response, when you see you're falling off, you're falling away, nice phrase, you're falling away from that equilibrium, the first thing is to loosen up. Because, uh, let's just focus on the excitation, falling away because we've been carried away by thoughts. It happens so frequently. Think of the, the thought captured you as being like a hook, right? And think of your awareness as being like another hook. So here your, your mind is, and the thought comes in, and it catches you, and then <laughs> carries you away. One hook catching another hook. And then your mind is carried away, and you're thinking about the referent, dun, the dun, of, how do you say, whatever the thoughts are about, right? And so the easiest way, if, if, you're, if you're hooked, the easiest way to get unhooked is to control that which you can't control. You can't control the thought. But what you can control is how you engage with the thought. So if you actually have, if, if, if Tai should come over with a hook, like a big, let's imagine you've got one arm on Captain, Captain Hook's hook, and it comes on and hooks me, and I've got a hook here. Well, he's yanking me away. He's going to take me off to his den and devour me, the big ogre that he is. So if I want to escape from the clutches of, of the great ogre Tai, then I can't do much about his hook. But if I just open up my hook, make it straight, then his hook slides right off. Right? So, so salita. So in a similar fashion, the first thing is not to try to yank your attention back while it's still hooked. Very effortful. But rather, so here's the hook. My left hand is the hook of a thought. My right hand is the hook of my own awareness. Release, loosen up. The first thing is we loosen up. The first thing is loosen up. 
relax, loosen up. And then your mind may not spontaneously go back to the object. But once you've loosened up, then you can just lightly tap it back, very gently bring it back. But if you're still caught up in grasping, then it's much more effortful. So it's two steps, three steps. First of all, recognize that you've fallen away. That's with shijin or introspection. Then relax. Open up your hook. So even if the thought has a lot of hooks, maybe it's a thought that has a lot of emotion to it. Somebody treated me very badly, so I'm getting resentful, I'm angry, or there's something very attractive and I really want it and craving and desire arises. So the thought may have a lot of hook with it, you know, of craving or aversion. But if I can just loosen up mine, then I release it. And it's still got a hook, but it's now floating by itself and vanishing into the mind. But now that I've unhooked, then I could just space out. Just just sit there without thinking anything. Well, that's not any meditation. That's just sitting with a blank mind. That's not shamatha, not vipassana, not anything. Certainly not dzogchen. So, But once you've unhooked, then you can, with very little effort, then just allow your awareness to come back and rest. And if it's awareness of awareness, it's actually the easiest. Because just having unhooked, now that your, your attention has been unhooked from the thought that yanked it away, that pulled it away, then you allow your awareness just to fall back into its natural place like a rubber band that's been stretched and you release it, the rubber band just comes right back to its natural form. And so like releasing your awareness, instead of it going out, it just comes and rests in its own place. Rangsar Nepa, Rangsar Zimba. Okay? Sabu the way. And the second question is uh, about uh, Bodhisattva's way. Bodhisattva's way, yeah. yes. You were encouraging us uh, last time to do, to follow, not to stay on Shamata, because Champa uh, and uh, Nigji, love, kindness, and... Uh, Compassion. Compassion, the antidote to uh, Shiva Zimba. Yes, yes, the Shiveta. Shiveta. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, uh, but you know, it looks like Bodhisattva is some kind of uh, kamikaze. I didn't uh, understand. It's uh, some Vatrasattva or? Kamikaze is from Japan. Kama, kamikaze, but <laughs> yeah. what's, what's like a kamikaze? Bodhisattva. The Bodhisattva is like uh, a kamikaze. I've yeah. never heard that before. Okay. Because, uh, you know, the samsara is endless. And I didn't understand. Samsara is endless. Samsara is endless. Yeah, and Who there said? is no end. Who said? Sorry. Who said? How do you uh, know? Because it is there is no end to the sentient beings. Yeah, but yeah. does that mean that there is no end of uh, For a person, it can you can achieve end for sure. You can become a Buddha. You can become enlightened, and there is an end for you. Yes. But not for all sentient beings. Which one? Which one? For which sentient being is there no end? Sorry? For which one? For, for, you say, for all sentient beings, there's no end. For which one? For me no. or for maybe no, no, no. for Basa? Because uh, yeah, maybe, uh, maybe, about maybe, maybe of count. No. What's that? About of, it's a question of count. If we will count it, they're endless. We can't. Yeah? But among the endless ones, which one doesn't have a chance? Uh, everyone have, but uh, because of huge number. Yeah? And not all can achieve at the same time. Which ones can't? At the same time. Which ones? Which one can? All of them can. All have Buddha nature. At the same time. Yeah, they all have, it, all have Buddha nature at the same time. Yeah. 
So we're going to do a bit in English here also. <laughs> this is really debating. He's, he's been trying to debate, I've been debating. But as soon as he said, oh, because, all sentient beings, because there are limitless sentient beings, there will never come a time when all have achieved enlightenment. This, true enough, is a little bit abstract. That is, it's not going to happen anytime really soon. But His Holiness Dalai Lama has addressed that question. And that is, could there be an end to samsara altogether? And he said, I hope so. <laughs> but, <coughs> but I don't know so. And that is, if you point to any sentient being, to Yen or to Mark or to the caterpillar out there or to big pythons up in the jungle, whatever it is, can you point to anyone and say, ah, there's one that will never achieve enlightenment. Not possible, because everyone has a Buddha nature, right? So since everyone has the potential, it's impossible to, if one points to any one of them that say, you'll never achieve enlightenment. And since that's true for all sentient beings, then we can't say with certainty that there's no end. Um, but how long it will take? Well, that's kind of up to us. You know? So we try to, try to help as many sentient beings as we can along the way. But back to you. Tene? So, and uh, they know that they cannot achieve their goal. Who? Bodhisattvas. Oh, be before oh, you will stay bodhisattva, for example, before yeah. you will step to the bodhisattva's way, yeah, you can't imagine that you will achieve this goal. Oh, I can imagine. The Dalai Lama can imagine. He says, "I hope so." Oh, yes. He's a bodhisattva. It's I not think. appropriate example about Dalai Lama thing. <laughs> you, you don't like that example? Do you have a better example of a bodhisattva? bodhisattva? He can imagine this, of course. <laughs> if I think. Uh, who on the planet right now is probably deserving of the name Bodhisattva? He jumps, jumps to my mind, like, me! <laughs> he doesn't say that, but I say that. So, maybe it's not impossible. But here's the question. Here's the question. I love a phrase from, from William James, the American psychologist. I quote him many aspects. I think have, he expresses great wisdom. And especially in this very skeptical world that we're living in, where many people think that just religion is just sheer delusion, just foolishness, and so forth. But people are skeptical of all kinds of things. People can be skeptical of religion and materialism, and just basically be skeptical of everything. So, fine. I don't know what, exactly what direction you go in then, but, you know, it's fine. Free country, free, free, free planet. But William James made the comment that there are some things that become true only if you believe them to be true. There's some things that become possible only if you believe they're possible. And if you don't believe they're possible, they're not possible. And so let's just take a very mi a minor example. So you've said all sentient beings. We have something like close to 40 people in this room, maybe 37, 38, 39. Right? Is it possible for every single one of the people here, whether in this lifetime, I don't, that doesn't matter so much, but is it possible for every single one here to achieve shamatha, just shamatha? Just ordinary shamatha. Is that possible for everyone here? This lifetime? Maybe not in this lifetime. I mean, if, if I, for example, should walk out and tomorrow be hit by a truck, then the, whatever I'm going to achieve in this lifetime is not much more than whatever I have, you know? And so, but is it possible? One would have to say, well, why not? Everybody has, Buddha, everybody has a substrate consciousness. So why shouldn't you be able to dissolve your mind into substrate consciousness? But now, will it happen? Will it happen that everyone here achieves shamatha? Well, if we believe, I, I don't have the ability. I, I, I just, I don't have the capacity. 
I, but other people have capacity, but I'm, I'm too screwed up. I'm too screwed up. I can't do it. Then you're right. You're right. If you believe, I'll, I'll never achieve shamatha. Congratulations, you're right. You won't. As long as you believe that, you won't. Because nobody's ever going to arouse sufficient inspiration and dedication of time and effort and so forth trying to do something they believe they can't do. That's not going to happen. So if you believe, oh, I'll never achieve this, congratulations, you've just made a prophecy that you can fulfill. You know, you won't achieve it. On the other hand, if another person feels, well, maybe not this lifetime, maybe I have too many obligations right now or what have you, but why not? And if not in this lifetime, future lifetime. Or why not in this lifetime? The only people who achieve shamatha in this lifetime are the people who believe they can. You know? If you don't believe it, you're, not going to give, you're just not going to give the time and effort to it. And so I think, this is, I, think I understand your question. And the Bodhisattva's response, listening closely to His Holiness in this regard, uh, is that, oh, semjin tamji, semjin tamji, dunga mepe dewata mindana jimarung. Why couldn't all sentient beings never be parted from joy devoid of suffering? Why not? Since everyone has a Buddha nature, why not? Mindewa Gyuchi, may we never be parted. May we all never be parted. So arousing aspiration. Mindewa Dagichao, I take it upon myself to see that all sentient beings are never parted from happiness devoid of sorrow. May the, may, the, may the guru, and it doesn't actually say Buddha, it says the, the deity, the, the yidam, the yidam, tara, majushu, whoever it may be, the personification of the Buddha for you, bless me that I may facilitate that. And so whatever good can be done, I think this is where it actually really matters, whatever good can be done in terms of liberating one sentient being, two sentient beings, or jujum lingba, bringing 13 sentient beings to rainbow body. They say 1,000 beings achieved vidyadhara, rikpazamba, chasons. Gigen chik, lama chik, sangimi kyavada. Amazing. But how can we bring about the greatest benefit by believing that we can bring about the greatest benefit? But not by saying this is impossible. Because we don't know. We really don't know. I think that's the answer. Yeah. We just, but some things become true only if we believe we're true. In Kalmykia, it's a difficult situation. I mean, it's, it's a wonderful country, and I enjoyed my visit there. For a Buddha Dhamma to... It, but it, it's, it's a difficult situation. You know so much better than I. Very difficult. Telur Rinpoche has such semshuk, such strength of heart, the head lama for the whole, this whole state of, of, the, of, of Russia. But one man is really, I think, almost by himself trying to revitalize. With help. People like you, of course. Of course with help. But one man is almost like carrying this burden. If I don't do it, who will do it? I think he probably has that thought. Mendo. Probably. Right. But now, is it possible? This, it's, it's, it's got economic problems. It doesn't have many natural resources. It has a very diverse population. Um, Buddhism was stamped out for a long time under the Soviet Union. So really, what are the chances of Buddha Dharma really flourishing in Kamikya? So many people can really learn Buddha Dharma and benefit from Buddha Dharma. Having monks and people achieving shamatha, vipassana, bodhicitta. What's the real chance of that happening? Kien What's that? Kien gogede. Kien gogede. 
We need, he says in Tibetan, we need cooperative, cooperative conditions. We need to bring about the right, we need to bring about the right causes and conditions. And then we consider, well, what are those right causes and conditions? For, and we're not talking about conversion here. I'm not, I hope you all know, I'm not talking about religious conversion. I'm just, may there be benefit. And this is largely a Buddhist state. It's the only Buddhist state in, in Western Europe, in Europe, not Western Europe. Because um, Kamiki is west of the Urals, so it's part of Europe. So it's the only Buddhist state in all of Europe. Right? But very challenging situation. So how could Buddha Dharma, since it's already mostly Buddhist already, how could Buddha Dharma really flourish there? Well, as, as Chakra said, by the right causing conditions coming together. And then if one is interested, as I know you are, and Telurambache, so much so, and I am also, also very sympathetic, want to help. What causes? What conditions? How could that? Chimarun, Chimarun. How could it happen? How could it happen? May it happen? And then my people like Telurumache. He could have such an easier life just hanging out with his wife and children in Colorado. Much easier. No tuku business, no lama business. Just find a nice little job. His wife has a job, two jobs, you can make a good living. So much easier. Right? But he doesn't do that. Always back and forth, back and forth. Semshu Hale Amazing courage he has. But it's because he believes. It could be. It could happen. Could happen. So that I tremendously respect. Yeah? Oh, that's all. Yes, Andres. I have a question uh, concerning uh, shamatha with respect to vipassana. Yes. And um, especially uh, vipassana uh, um, with respect to stream entry. If, stream entry, yes. If you, you, you <coughs> said the other day that in order to be passionate, to be fully effective, yeah. shamatha is required. Yeah, I think that's a non-controversial statement by people who know Buddhism. Right. Well. And... Um, I, I want to look left and right from shamatha. That I, is I didn't understand. Left and right from shamatha. Or left before, and right? I don't understand. Or before sh- reaching shamatha or after. Oh, so okay. after, if we look uh, further, then we, we, we can enter the first jhana. Yeah. And what does um, first jhana bring more to the table, help more with respect to, uh, to Vipassana and especially for stream entry? Uh, and, uh, be, on the beyond, other hand, that is beyond shamatha. Shamatha being access to the first jhana. If you go beyond shamatha to the full achievement of first jhana, for, what benefit jhana. is there? What from more that? benefit do I have? What greater benefit is there with respect to vipassana and with respect to stream entry? Exactly. And uh, on the other hand, um, is it also possible uh, to achieve stream entry without shamatha at all? Yeah. All right. So I can tell you because I, I try to be very clear to, to show that. Buddhism is not one monolithic tradition from Theravada. They're not all agreeing on everything. And they never have. Even from very shortly after the Buddha's death, there are already different schools of interpretation of Vinaya. So we had 18 then different schools. So why not? We don't all have to believe the same thing. So for the Indo-Tibetan tradition, uh, so Sanskrit-based, so it goes from India, Nepal, Bhutan, Sikkim, Ladakh, Tibet, Mongolia, that current that's the one that I've had most of my training in, but I've had a lot of exposure to Theravada also, right? So let's answer Theravada first. It's not clear. That's the real answer. There are clear statements, and, I, and I've, I've read a lot about this in the debates, and they're very high-level debates by scholars who scholars such as uh, Mahasi Saidao and Kaminda Tera. Kaminda Tera was actually from Yugoslavia. Mahasi Saidao, of course, Burmese. 
but they're both very, very knowledgeable. There's no question. Very scholarly. And to, to, uh, compared to me, I'm nothing at all. I, I don't even get a debate. I don't even get a, a chair in the debate. These two are very accomplished scholars, both of them. And Mahasi Sayadaw taught many of his students that um, you don't need to achieve shamatha. You can have dry vipassana, dry vipassana, and achieve stream-entry. Kimindatera, another consummate scholar, fluent in Pali, excellent scholar, knew the, the Pali canon, the commentaries, the sub-commentaries. I mean, really, heavy duty. He said, you're wrong. That's a misinterpretation. You've, you've taken something from the 13th century sub-commentary of some Burmese scholar who even knows who he is, and it was taken out of context, and this is a misinterpretation. You've missed it. That drive, that's not what is meant by dry vipassana, and that momentary samadhi, you've taken that up context. Momentary samadhi is within the context of already having achieved jhana, not having no jhana. So you've really made a misinterpretation. And in a text that is online, <coughs> and it's commendatera, and it's, it's about samadhi and vipassana, very readable. And it's, you can, then you can judge for yourself how good the scholarship is. I think it's very, very good. Um, then he cites many sources in the Pali Canon, including the Buddha, saying, you know, reflecting back on the time after he'd finished the six years of austerity, the question coming up, might the first jhana, might that be the way to enlightenment? The answer came back, yes, it is, and then he achieved enlightenment. That would suggest the first jhana is pretty important. But he did say enlightenment. He didn't say stream entry. So I'll, t- I'll cite another excellent scholar who, again, there's no comparison between me and uh, b- between him and me with respect to Theravada Buddhism. I'm not I'm, I'm not in a running. I'm like a jackass on the side of a of a race course, you know, a, a race a racetrack. We have thoroughbreds, and I'm a jackass going ha ha. So I'm the jackass on the side. But a person who's a real racehorse is Bhikkhu Bodhi. He's an outstanding scholar. He's an American, but he's fluent Pali and an excellent translator, and he's very good understanding. And he has looked at this very carefully. And his conclusion is a little bit different from both, because he's not simply a disciple of Mahasi Sayadaw. He's certainly not a disciple of Kimindatera. He is a disciple of Nyanaponikatera, another Western monk, German monk, the heart of Buddhist meditation. He's a direct disciple, close disciple of him. So Bhikkhu Bodhi, with his great erudition, he's looked at this, and, he, and his conclusion is that it's not, not necessary to achieve Voljana, first jhana, in order to become stream-enterer. Not necessary. But for the higher stages, and I don't remember exactly where he draws the line, whether it's once-returner or non-returner, but somewhere in there you must have jhana. You must have, You can't just go there with momentary samadhi all the way. Not enough. That's why, after all, the Buddha taught sila samadhi panya and not simply sila and panya. You know. And why samadhi vipassana, samadhi vipassana, it runs through all of Buddhism. So it's not because samadhi is irrelevant that it's always put there. So that's his conclusion, based upon Theravada commentaries with a lot of erudition, far, far more than I have. Right? But then for the Indo-Tibetan, I think I've been more trained in that than Masi Sayadaw, who wasn't at all, and Bhikkhu Bodhi, that's just not his field of expertise. He's been studying Pali. Well, I've been in the Sanskrit-Tibetan lineage in that tradition. And there, it's very clear, and it, there's no debate within that whole tradition, Gelu, the, all the schools of Tibetan Buddhism, Gelu, Sakya, Kagyu, Nyingma, all of them, when they're studying the great classic treatises of India on these five paths now, including the path of seeing, which begins, path of seeing is for a sravaka, person seeking our hardship, the path of seeing is exactly stream-entry. Exactly stream-entry. And they all say there's no way, there's no way to become a stream-enterer without having 
the unification, the complete fu- the uniting of shamatha and vipassana, and that is that it, by what by way of shap, by way of vipas- vipassana, I use the Sanskrit, by way of vipassana, you penetrate through to gain a realization of nirvana, the unconditioned, that stream entry. But to to be able to so immerse your mind and that your realization is completely non-conceptual and non-dual, it must be backed with the stability and vividness of shamatha, and the union of those two. So it's vipassana that breaks through and shamatha that enables you to stay there with clarity and stability. And in that way, this radical and irreversible transformation, I mean, to say this in the Buddhist worldview, to speak of an irreversible transformation of consciousness is just, it's vast. It's just inconceivably vast, right? That never again will you ever be not on the path. That's what stream entry is. There it is. And so there, the whole, the whole, this, all of these schools flowing out of India from the Sanskrit-based based literature say that there must be a, f- a fusion of shamatha vipassana. Then the scholars get there, and they're now the, the great scholars, again, I'm not one of those either, but the great scholars like Nagarjuna, Asanga, Dhammakirti, Dignaga, and then on into Tibet, Sakyapandita, and Gampopa, and so forth and so on, these great scholars, then with tremendous intelligence and fantastic erudition. But once again, I'm the jackass on the side of the road, you know. Really, I'm not. I'm not in the competition. I'm not in their class at all. What they have they have concluded is, and there's pretty pretty wide wide degree of consensus here, is that is it necessary to have full jhana to become stream enterer, full jhana, first jhana? The answer is no. Access is sufficient. Access is sufficient. Now access is pretty significant, and then we go back. Now once again, there's consensus. I've never seen any any disparity or debate between Theravada and this Indo-Tibetan current. Well. What do you get with access and what do you get with full jhana? Nyeto dan muji. What is the difference? And that is we have two issues here at stake on the pros and the cons. And that is when you achieve access to the first jhana, shamatha, just what we call sh- achieving shamatha. Then <clears throat> at that point, now you've achieved shamatha, your mind is dissolved into the substrate consciousness, all of your five obscurations ill will, sensual craving, all of those, all have gone dormant, right? The five jhana factors, samdengi yela, of course investigation and so forth, I think you know them, the five jhana factors now are all on tap. They are not available, they are for you to play, like it's an instrument, you can just start playing it. You have all five of them at your disposal, right? So that's true for shamatha. The five obscurations are dormant. They're not obliterated, they're not eradicated, but they're all kind of gone to sleep dormant. And the five jhana factors are all available at your service. Then one can say, well, then why bother to achieve the, the, the full state of the first jhana? What's the difference? Here's the difference. And that is in both states, access as well as the actual state of the first jhana, the five obscurations are equally dormant. They're equally dormant. No better, no worse. So, in that way, no better. But the five jhana factors the five jhana factors are more robust. They're stronger, just more muscle. They're more powerful, those five. That's the difference. And it's because of that difference that if we go back to the Indo-Tibetan tradition, <clears throat> they'll say, well, once you've achieved shamatha, access to the first jhana, how long can you remain in flawless samadhi? Effortlessly. Four hours, easy. Four hours, easy. But then we go over to the Theravada tradition, to Bodhagosa in particular. Say, if you've achieved the full jhana, First jhana, how long can you remain in flawless samadhi? 24 hours, 
24 hours, effortlessly, flawlessly. And in both cases, sense is completely withdrawn, so it's as if you're deep asleep, but radiantly awake, but with all the five jhana factors, so that you don't have a deep sleep. So it's just more robust, more robust. And so, from the Indo-Tibetan tradition, which also has this phrase, dry vipassana, dry vipassana, also has the phrase, or has the theme, that you, you might achieve vipassana before shamatha. Or you might achieve shamatha before vipassana. You say, well, that, that doesn't make any sense. How do you achieve vipassana? I mean, does that make any sense? Yes, it does make sense. Because they're saying you can achieve shamatha, vipassana before shamatha. Shamatha here referring to full jhana. Or you can achieve just access to the first jhana. So just... So, shamatha, and then with just access to the first jhana, but without full jhana, you may venture into and realize vipassana, and that's dry vipassana. That's dry vipassana. It doesn't have the full strength of full jhana. Okay? So, overall, in conclusion, for the Indo Tibetan tradition, uh, let alone achieving stream entry, let alone achieving just the, the, the path of accumulation, which is considerably before stream entry, path of accumulation, path of seeing, or of stream entry, Achieving our hardship, you can achieve all of those. In terms of samadhi, all you really need, if you want to get by with just enough, is access to the first jhana. It's sufficient. However, having said that, if you have the full jhana, it will be stronger. If you've achieved the second, third, fourth jhana, the Buddha encouraged it. If you have the time, achieve all four jhanas. A lot of purification in that. And the mind becomes incredibly stable. Then, Buddha Gosa, if you achieve the fourth jhana, now how long can you remain in samadhi? days or weeks with no breath. So, much more stable than the first jhana. Do you need it? The answer is unequivocally no. You don't. You don't need it, but it can be very useful. Okay? Oh, yeah. Any quick ones? That was a big one. Yes, Peter. We'll go here first. And with that from Jessica, then tomorrow. Yeah. I realize that it's probably quite some time before I need to worry about this, but at, at, at the point of achieving samadhi... Which one? Uh, how, mu- how much? Because you've already got samadhi. Samadhi is a mental factor. You've already got it. Congratulations. A- access to the first jhana. Oh, shamatha. Shamatha, sorry. Yeah. Um, you mentioned a heaviness on the head. Yeah, it's very transient. What is it? What is this? It's a heaviness on the head. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> yes, I, th- th- I thought that would clarify things a little bit. Um, those who've experienced it say it's like having a bald head. So you can imagine that pretty easily. And having somebody with a warm hand just gently place his hand on the top of your head. And those who've experienced it say it's not unpleasant. It's just kind of a pressure. And that's the first indicator. And I, I like, frankly, I like the, 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 the analogy of a woman whose water is just broken. She's about to give birth. This is the water breaking. But if you have a sense of pressure on the head tomorrow, don't get your hopes up. <laughs> it might just be a pressure on the head, <laughs> you know, like a headache coming on. <laughs> but if, once you've achieved stage nine, once you're there, it's like a woman who's nine months pregnant. She's, she's expecting, you know, she could be peeing on, peeing on her leg five months earlier. That's not water breaking. She's peeing on her leg, right? <laughs> and likewise, you can have pressure on top of your head at any time. But it's only when you've achieved ninth stage and then you feel it. Then you might think, oh, this is the water breaking. 
this is the first indication that I'm now gonna, about to have some really, really interesting experiences. They're going to come very, very soon. And they're going to come in a cascade. It's going to start there. And then that'll be the first indicator. And then there's going to be an unprecedented degree of mental suppleness, lightness, buoyancy, malleability. And so you're going to see a, a real shift in the mind, just like total fluid. And you're going to experience that for a little while. And then there's going to be a kind of a top-down effect. And you're going to find this tapping into the body, that something now you're experiencing your body. The body is kind of shouting out at you. And you're going to experience a, tr a unprecedented, a very dramatic shift of the promise within the body. And it's going to be like just a, like an, like a geyser, like something totally flowing out, like a dam breaking, where the, the, the lelung, the karmic energies, are now flowing, and they will flow, they will, they will just, like a dam breaking, they're going to flow and saturate your whole body. And with that's going to come a great sense of, of pliancy, malleability, and so forth of the body, of just a rush of energy, but permeates your whole body. You'll be have a lot of somatic sensation at that time. And that's the pliancy, the prashrapta of the body. And then out of that, very energetic quality to it, out of that's going to arise a very sharp bliss. And it's going to be a physical bliss. It's going to saturate your body. Just you'll be filled. You'll, you won't be able to do anything. You're just going to have to be, sit there and be blissful because it's going to basically incapacitate you for a little while. You'll be so blissed out physically. And then that will be eclipsed, so to speak, by a type of bliss then that saturates the mind. And you really feel it then mentally. Once again, just an ecstasy, a bliss, something quite overwhelming and very strong. And then that, having filled the mind, as the bliss filled the body, this having filled the mind, then that will taper off. It will quiet down. Like again, like, oh, let's say, like a Maserati, a Lamborghini. When you first turn it on, let's say it's 12 cylinders. You know, when you first turn it on, and you hear all of those 12 cylinders singing in a chorus, like, wow, that's why this car cost a half a million dollars. For that sound. It's for that sound, you know. Because I'm, because you know, I live on Phuket, and how fast can I drive the car after all? But I really like the sound. That's a half-million-dollar sound, you know? But when it first comes on, we all know what it's like, whether it's a motorcycle or a really fine car. And then, after it's all come to life, then it goes... And then another half-million-dollar sound. This is the Lamborghini ready to go. You know? And that's what it's like. There's this bliss that arising, and then it tapers off to much more like a quiet murmur, one that you can really live with. It's much more subdued. Now you have the sukha and the pritti, the sense of well-being, the bliss, but the bliss is not overwhelming. And when it subdues like that, that's when you achieve shamatha. Something like that. But let's see whether it's true or not. I don't know. That was just a really good talk. And you like the Lamborghini analogy, right? That was pretty cool. Hola, <laughs> so. Tomorrow, Francesca will start. Right now it's dinner time. We want to show our great respect for our wonderful chefs. And I'll see you a little bit later.